So today I'm going to talk about Romeo and Juliet. One of the two tragedies, the other is Titus Andronicus, that Shakespeare writes near the beginning of his career in the early 1590s. Then, as you all know, he moves away from tragedy to comedies and English histories, comes back to tragedies with Hamlet around the turn of the 17th century. So these are uh, Romeo and Juliet with Titus Andronicus. It's a bit of a kind of generic uh, chronological kind of misfit. Um, it's, it comes within a t at a time of comedy writing, and that may come up later uh, in the lecture. So most critics would date Romeo and Juliet to about 1594 to 5, somewhere in between Midsummer Night's Dream and Richard II. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream has obviously got a kind of Romeo and Juliet parody in the Pyramus and Thisbe plot, either a preemptive parody, if it comes before, or a kind of uh, afterwards parody, if it comes afterwards, but we don't, we don't exactly know. It's quite interesting to think about Romeo and Juliet's formal linguistic structures, though, I think, in relation to those two adjacent plays. That cluster of plays together, Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, Richard II, are in some ways the most formal or the most formally kind of inflected of Shakespeare's plays, the most uh, obvious use of verse, rhyming, uh, the sonnet form in Romeo and Juliet, for instance, all the different kinds of language that the different uh, characters use uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream. And just as a sideline, maybe we think that putting plays together because of something about their poetry or something about how they sound might be an interesting uh, way to group plays as opposed to what we generally do, which is to group them by plot broadly uh, or by character. Okay, so usually in these lectures I begin by giving an outline in the play, of the play in the expectation that at least some of you won't have read it or seen it. That seems a bit pointless with Romeo and Juliet, and in some ways that pointlessness, the pointlessness of summarising the plot, I guess is what I want to try and talk about today. Would it be possible in the educated English-speaking world, not even beyond that, I guess, not to know in outline the tragedy um, of doomed love, as well as some of its most iconic visual and verbal moments. Juliet's balcony, perhaps, so carefully reconstructed in Mussolini's Italy on a likely-looking medieval building in Verona to encourage tourism. It's a wonderful back projection, the invention of Verona as, as, the, um, as the place of Romeo and Juliet very much postdates rather than predates the play. Or perhaps the famous Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Among the thousands of parodies of this, just in brackets, I think Sassy Gay Friend on YouTube is the best. <laughs> if you don't know these, you should. Sassy Gay Friend, and there are imitations, but I don't think they're as good. Sassy Gay Friend interrupts Juliet just as she is about to kill herself over the body of Romeo, asks her, what are you doing? and gives her some home truths. You met this guy on Sunday, he says. You're 14 years old, he reminds her. And gloriously, he glosses her most famous line. It sounds to me like desperate, desperate. I'm really, really desperate. <laughs> so Romeo and Juliet is a play we somehow already know before we encounter it. Maybe talk in a minute about whether that was always the case. But the play itself emphasises this quality that we already know what's going to happen in one formal feature which is unique in the Shakespearean canon. That's a prologue which tells us what's going to happen. A spoiler in movie speak, a prolepsis in narrative theory speak. So 
So let's start by hearing that. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured, piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. So the question I want to try and organise this lecture around is, why, or perhaps more importantly, to what effect? What does it do to our experience of the play to have this clear statement of what will happen before it begins? And I want to try and think about this question in terms of genre, in terms of sources, in terms of the play's textual history, and in terms of performance. In some ways, the kind of vectors I guess I always turn to. Firstly, let's think a little bit about choric prologues to Shakespeare's plays. We get one in Henry IV, Part Two, one in Henry V, one in Troilus and Cressida, one in Pericles. Writing in their book, Prologues to Shakespeare's Theatre, Doug Brewster and Robert Wyman identify the pr function of the prologue as a kind of ritualised transition. They say it, it, it helps us transition between the turbulent world of the playhouse, so I guess the noise and kind of kerfuffle uh, of people um, before they settle down, and the representational world of the performed play. So it's like lowering the house lights or something like that. It warns the audience that things are about to kick off. About a third of extant plays in the 1590s have a prologue. And certainly by, there's quite a lot of evidence that by the next decade, so the decade from, say, 1600 to 1610, a prologue looked a pretty old-fashioned thing to have, and there are jokes about how a prologue uh, is a sign of an old-fashioned kind of a play. But in the 1590s, uh, about a third of extant plays uh, have a prologue. And the other ones in Shakespeare tend to work to establish the scene, to tell us about the Trojan Wars, for example, to introduce us to, in, to the incestuous court of King Antioch, in Pericles uh, via the medieval writer Gower. Henry IV, part two, subverts this function a little bit by making a game about what really did happen um, before the play begins. It characterises the prologue as the figure of rumour dressed in a cloak decorated with eyes and ears. So it kind of sets up the difficulty of knowing uh, the historical past. Henry V takes up another function of both prologues and epilogues in the early modern theatre, a kind of negotiation with the fact of stage representation, a consciousness of its power and its limitations, or perhaps its power in its limitations. So there are lots of different things Shakespearean pro prologues can do, that's to say, but none other does what Romeo and Juliet's does, preview the plot, broadly speaking, in its entirety. So one thing is clear, we all already know Romeo and Juliet before we come to watch it. We know what's coming, the play is strongly teleological, heading inexorably to a conclusion that is already strongly written and necessary. The chorus tells us it's only through the death of the children that the parents' feud uh, will be ended. So we've got to get to that point. The lovers are dead in terms of our experience of the play, 
even before we meet them. They're introduced to us only to further this fatalistic plot. Not only does the chorus tell us the plot outline, but its sonnet form, it's forming the Shakespearean sonnet, heads relentlessly towards a closing couplet that's full of the language of determinism, and it's kind of formally deterministic. Um, uh, a sonnet form is not something that we expect something surprising to happen at the end. Um, so the, the fatal loins of the families has the, the idea of fated as well as fatal, meaning deadly. The lovers are star-crossed, they're astrologically fated. They are misadventured, meaning unlucky. Their love is death-marked even before it begins. So the language, therefore, and the worldview expressed in this chorus stress the inevitability, the pre-scriptedness, the already happenedness of the events in the playhouse that is still to come. It's a clever trick of Baz Luhrmann, one of a number of clever tricks in that 1996 film, to have the prologue delivered by a newscaster. The bland, almost formulaic structure of Shakespeare's verse here and the absolute unwillingness to apportion blame, uh, which is something we'll come back to, fits the reported, after the fact, too late to be different format of broadcast news. Uh, what's on the news is by definition what's already happened. And the sonnet's rhythmical structure also seems, serves the same purpose. Those alternate end rhymes form a kind of microcosmic version of inevitability the level of the syntax or the level of the form of the lines, we've got something inevitable. Once the pattern has been established, we're just waiting for the rhyme. It's like waiting for the shoe to drop. The rhyme comes inexorably, and each positive or relatively neutral term turns bad when it's completed in the rhyme. Dignity becomes mutiny. <coughs> Scene becomes unclean. Foes overthrows life strife. So, I guess what I'm saying here is that the language of the prologue, both in its formal structure and in its fatalistic content, serves to underline that proleptic or spoiler-like presence of the opening sonnet. And it, of course, anticipates later elements of the play which have a prophetic or proleptic element. Romeo's uh, premonition, for example, just before the Capulet Ball. I fear too early... I think I fear too early is a sort of headline for this, for this play somehow. I fear too early, for my mind misgives some consequence yet hanging in the stars shall bitterly begin his fearful date with this night's revels and expire the term of a despised life closed in my breast by some vile forfeit of untimely death. That word untimely, <coughs> untimely uh, comes I think about six times uh, in this play. It's a play about untimeliness, as we're going to go on to see. So, uh, what do we make of that? I guess early modern audiences and early modern readers more generally seem to have been less interested in shock endings or surprise fictions than we are, or at least than we think we are. A humanist education system suspicious of novelty or invention, or in some ways even fiction itself, as morally compromised, taught generations of playwrights and poets that reworking, translation, and rewriting existing texts were the sign of the poet. Okay, so instead of those terms which we might think that we, uh, we, we rate in our uh, literary fiction, novelty, or invention, 
uh, we've got instead reworking, translation, and rewriting. The intellectual environment known, of course, as imitatio. And the, the context of imitatio, the idea that uh, texts were based on a whole network of other texts uh, that you also would know, uh, was part of readers' pleasure or audience pleasure. Spot, <coughs> spotting the sources, feeling that you understood the, the kind of intellectual inheritance of a piece seems to have been what people enjoyed. When John Manningham goes to see Twelfth Night at Middle Temple, for instance, in February 1602, one of very few reference we have, references we have to a Shakespeare play in performance, uh, Manningham's description of the play is that it's like Comedy of Errors and Plautus's Menachme. So the tone of the diary entry doesn't seem to be, yada yada, we've seen all that before, seems to be that that's a source of pleasure and reinforcement for him and for the play, that it's got this inheritance, it's got this legacy, uh, and he can recognise it. Longer narratives in this period often had intermediate plot summaries. Think of those short verses that precede the cantos of Spencer's Fairy Queen, for instance, suggesting that the pleasure of reading was not in the surprise and fulfilment of seeing how things might turn out, but enjoying the variations on an established theme. It may be we're not actually so far from this ourselves, watch any movie trailer and it's pretty self-evident what is going to happen. And those internet lists of movie clichés show how much of our own mass entertainment is enjoyable precisely because it operates within existing narrative paradigms. If a movie hero has a sidekick and he mentions his family in the first two minutes of the film, the sidekick will be killed, especially if he has a picture of his family on his desk and especially if there is a golden Labrador involved. <laughs> this is one of my favourites. A hero will show no pain even during the most terrific beating, yet he will always wince when a woman attempts to clean a facial wound. So... <laughs> But in larger plot points too, how often do you really go to a film or read a novel when you can't imagine how it's going to end? So the spoiler of Romeo and Juliet is related to ideas about the low cultural status of originality and surprise in the early modern period. But we might feel that those elements are not so common in mass entertainment anyway. The second point perhaps about spoilers is more specifically generic. It's something about tragedy. And here I want to spend a little bit of time uh, with a French playwright uh, of the mid-20th century, Jean Ennui. Ennui wrote a version of the Greek tragedy Antigone, which was presented in occupied Paris in 1944. <coughs> he adds into the play, uh, in the voice of the chorus, something which is not at all present in Sophocles' original, a, a kind of disquisition on the nature of tragedy. So here, here he is. I've exerted it, but it's still quite long. Um, but you'll get, the, you'll get the drift of it. Here's Henri on tragedy. The spring is wound up tight. It will uncoil of itself. This is what is so convenient in tragedy. The least little turn of the wrist will do the job. Anything will set it going. The rest is automatic. You don't need to lift a finger. The machine is in perfect order. It has been oiled since time began and it runs without friction. Tragedy is clean, it is restful, it is flawless. It has nothing to do with melodrama, with wicked villains, persecuted maidens, avengers, sudden revelations, and eleventh-hour repentances. Death in a melodrama is really horrible because it is never inevitable. The dear old father might so easily have been saved, 
the honest young man might so easily have brought in the police five minutes earlier. Interesting thing about that distinction on Wiener between melodrama and tragedy and how, whether that's useful for thinking about Romeo and Juliet. This is on me just to finish. In, in a tragedy, nothing is in doubt and everyone's destiny is known. That makes for tranquility. There is a sort of fellow feeling among characters in a tragedy. He who kills is as innocent as he who gets killed. It's all a matter of what part you are playing. Tragedy is restful, and the reason is that hope, that foul, deceitful thing, has no part in it. There isn't any hope. So I think what's interesting about this part of Henri's play in relation to our discussion of Romeo and Juliet is clearly that it's heavily invested in tragedy as inevitable, inexorable, unstoppable. There's something mechanical about it, that even in the language that Henri uses, the spring uncoils, the machine has been oiled. It's like one of those elaborate patterns of dominoes set off by a single nudge. There's nothing you can do but watch it do its thing. Nothing is in doubt. Everyone's destiny is known, says Henri. That makes tragedy restful. There's no striving, no uncertainty, none of the stress of hoping it might actually turn out for the best. Sit back, enjoy it, they're all going to die, and there's nothing anyone can do. Now, the sense that tragedy is somehow streamlinedly inevitable is one of the things which is often said about it as a genre. So it's an ideological as well as a formal construct. A, tr a view of the tragic world in which human agency is so reduced as to be almost non-existent. If you've, got this if, you've, if you've got this kind of machine-like world where uh, there's absolute tranquility and n nothing for people to do, it's a very passive uh, kind of um, manifesto, I think, uh, on these uh, Antigone. Susan Snyder has a great take on this in her book, The Comic Matrix of Shakespeare's Tragedies. Uh, this is the bit I want to pick out of that book. She argues that the tragic world is governed by inevitability, the conflict between human and cosmic law, the contradictions inherent in the individual and, or, or his or her circumstances. So that's, that's a principle of inevitability. There's no turning back. There's no alternative. There's no path not taken. Uh, there's no, there's, it, this is a view of tragedy which doesn't really allow for one of those kind of moments of choice where you choose, you choose to be tragic or you could turn away from it. It's a sense that tragedy is tragedy right from the beginning. And Snyder gives us the useful contrasting principle of evitability as the condition of comedy. Comedy, she notes, rewards opportunism and pragmatism. Comedy twists and turns to avoid obstacles and to come to a redemptive or a procreative conclusion. So inexorability, therefore, the already knownness that I'm identifying as one major feature of Romeo and Juliet's chorus, is in fact the hallmark of tragedy itself. Now, it's easy to see the appeal of this for Henri in the context of occupied France in 1944. There's a lot at stake in saying bad things happen and there's nothing humans can do about it. But there are a number of important modern takes on Shakespearean tragedy which do something similar, which really stress inevitability, uh, the, the, the impossibility of turning this tragedy into anything different right from the start. Top of my list, I guess, would be the opening sequence of Orson Welles' film of Othello, which begins with the funeral march of Othello and Desdemona on the Cyprus battlements, and Iago captured and taken off for punishment. It's all over before it's begun, says Welles, just like the Romeo and Juliet chorus. Don't get your hopes up that it can be any different, and now settle down. Watch it unfold in horrific car crash, car crash slow motion. 
So Wells's Othello, like the Romeo and Juliet chorus, clearly sees tragedy within an entirely fatalistic worldview. So is tragedy a genre in which the human capacity to affect his or her situation is undermined? I think questions of agency, human agency in tragedy, are really important. Uh, the lecture on Macbeth really goes into that theme. And perhaps the popularity of tragedy as an early modern form reflects a cultural historical interest in the question of agency. Philosophies of causation move in this period from providential theocentric ideas of medieval Christianity, things happen because God makes them happen, via Machiavelli's unflinching stress on human ingenuity and significance, and come out somewhere around the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, writing his theory of the social contract and Leviathan in the Civil War. Things happen because humans, individually and collectively, behave in particular self-interested ways. Perhaps the Romeo and Juliet prologue also has an agenda for its own fatalistic worldview. At the end of the play, the prince announces, some shall be pardoned and some punished. Some shall be pardoned and some punished. It's not really clear who is in which camp, but the suggestion that one of the important things to do at the end of the play is to mete out temporal judicial punishment does suggest that human agents can be held responsible for what has happened. There is, that's to say, less of a star-crossed lovers, fatal loins, misadventures, piteous overthrows vibe to the end of the play than there is to the beginning. If it was all always going to be like that, it's hard to blame any particular and probably minor character for making it happen. In a story written in the stars, can you really blame the apothecary for bringing the poison? So Romeo and Juliet is already written in some metaphysical sense because that's the genre of tragedy. And in a more local sense, it's already written because, as these lectures always end up saying, the story pre-exists Shakespeare. There are undoubtedly stories of lovers on opposite sides of some human divide, which means they are doomed in cultures across the world and long before the Renaissance. But the direct source Shakespeare is using is the long poem by Arthur Brooke, translated from the Italian under the title The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet, published in 1562. Brooke's poem also starts with a sonnet. That's quite a useful poem to put alongside Shakespeare's chorus. Here's Brooke. Love hath inflamed twain by sudden sight, and both to grant the thing that both desire. They wed in shrift by counsel of a friar, Young Romeus climbs fair Juliet's bower by night. Three months he doth enjoy his chief delight. By Tybalt's rage provoked unto ire, he payeth death to Tybalt for his hire. A banished man, he escapes by secret flight. New marriage is offered to his wife. She drinks a drink that seems to reeve her breath. They bury her that sleeping yet hath life. Her husband hears the tidings of her death. He drinks his bane. And she with Romeo's knife, when she awakes, herself, alas, she slayeth. Perhaps this helps us to see two things more clearly about Shakespeare's version. Firstly, Brooke gives a lot more detail about how, the, how this plot is going to happen and the order of events. And clearly some of the details are different from Shakespeare's. But he makes pretty clear that the blame for this is really on the couple themselves. Their behaviour leads to their downfall. Uh, the, the tw it's the twain who have um, done certain things which then 
uh, has consequences. There's none of that fated or star-crossed language of Shakespeare's opening chorus. Even the two different sonnet forms point this out. You see Brooke uh, is writing a kind of sonnet with no final couplet. So there's even, a, even just the form of that uh, poem is less inexorable, is less teleological. So while Shakespeare may have taken the idea of having an argument, an outline, uh, from uh, Brooke, he changes the motivation for this tragedy quite distinctly. Brooke's prefatory material to Romeo and Juliet is all moralistic, largely anti-Catholic. The message is that young people should do what their parents say, and they should have nothing whatsoever to do with friars. Brooke's poem as a whole is more sympathetic to the lovers than the initial framework. But we can see that Shakespeare throws out this didactic notion. It would, be pre- it would be pretty perverse to generate from the plot of Romeo and Juliet the message, do what your parents tell you. The unexplained and therefore unjustified family feud, not the uh, changeable and distant parents, sorry, the, the unexplained and therefore unjustifiable and ju- unjustified family feud, nor the changeable and distant parents, are not presented by Shakespeare as sources of moral authority. So this is not a play which says, your parents know best, the parents know best. I think quite the opposite. But it's interesting to see that Shakespeare can change the framework for the tragedy. He can take out that moralistic element. But he can't transform it so completely that the lovers escape their families and live happily ever after, in Mantua, perhaps. The tragedy retains its own inexorable shape. The fatal law here is not just one of genre in general, but of the source in particular. The standard line on how Shakespeare uses his sources is that he transforms them from prosaic dross into poetic gold. And where this may often be true, it's also the case that he's rarely able majorly to reshape them. The source seems to already trace out the narrative arc in a way that's irresistible. I guess King Lear is the only important exception to that. So Romeo and Juliet is overdetermined by many preceding structures of both genre, the idea of tragedy, and of source, the outcome of um, uh, the young love in Brooks, Romeo and Juliet. Maybe it starts to look as if this issue of hobbled or compromised agency is as much a feature of the playwright as of his characters. They are all playing out a cosmically preordained script with none of that evitability that Snyder identifies as the roadmap for comedy. Okay, so the chorus follows the source and diverts from it in some interesting ways. Maybe we could think about the relation between the, the source and the play as parallel to that between the chorus and the play. Each of the first terms, source and chorus, is proleptic, anticipatory, preemptive. It sets out the ground that the following term, the play, has to follow. Maybe we could think about this rhetorically. The great rhetorical term, which is called histeron proteron, histeron proteron, so that's your task for this week, to try and find an opportunity to say that. So histeron proteron. George Putnam, who is the most interesting early modern anatomist of rhetorical figure, defines it in 1589 in this way. Another manner of disordered speech. We call it in English... Um, proverb, the cart before the horse. The Greeks call it hysteron proteron. We name it the preposterous. As he said, my dame that bred me up and bare me in her womb. 
whereas the bearing is before the bringing up. So histeron proteron is the cart before the horse, putting something that should come afterwards before. Shakespeare's later plays with the old patriarchs like Lear or Pericles or Prospero and the sense of looking back over a long, perhaps too long life, both within the plays and in the kind of retrospective these plays cast on Shakespeare's previous plays, these are often discussed in terms of belatedness. <coughs> perhaps we could use that same chronological model to see Shakespeare's early plays as being about earliness or about something premature, something that doesn't yet have the chance to develop. Let's take earliness, like lateness, as a theme of the plays, rather than just a factual condition of their writing. Some of the ideas that later literary eras have generated about the concept of juvenilia might be helpful here. Shakespeare isn't a juvenile writing this play. He's probably about 30. But he is new to the theatre, relatively speaking, uh, and he is writing about very young people. Lots of elements of this play are about being premature, about coming too soon. The pun is somehow unavoidable. This is a play with a kind of structural premature ejaculation. Consummation is too quick, wrongly placed. Actually, having sex in Shakespeare's plays is pretty fatal. It's hard to think of a single character, particularly not a female one, who has sex in Shakespeare and doesn't quite quickly die of it. Um, and so we can see that that is a problem uh, in the play. Comedies work as comedies by sublimating sex into wordplay, and leaving us at the door of the bedchamber, which is why Measure for Measure and All's Well, which don't conform to that, are so challenging. Here in Romeo and Juliet, what should be at the end of the play, its consummation, is brought into the middle, and so there's nowhere good for the play to go. We might compare this briefly to that contemporaneous play, Midsummer Night's Dream, I mentioned <coughs> at the start. At the beginning of Midsummer Night's Dream, Theseus is impatient to be married. And the whole play is a kind of pretext or time filler so that the time of his marriage to Hippolyta and the night time when that marriage will be properly consummated can be filled up. So this is all time-wasting uh, before Theseus can get his marriage and have his marriage night. So that's a play about waiting. Uh, and Romeo and Juliet, I guess, as a play of, of around the same time is about being unable to wait. Romeo and Juliet is a play that can't wait the chorus already spills out the story even before we've settled into our seats. <coughs> Juliet is only 13, even though we, we, she's, she's talked about it in terms of not yet being 14. Uh, even that's a kind of anticipatory uh, youth, a kind of uh, trying to get to 14, and when the, the point is that she's not. Her father tells Paris, first tells Paris she won't be married until she's older, then reconsiders and arranges that she'll be married within days. The play's timescale escalates. What day is it? Juliet's father asks Paris. Monday. Well, Wednesday is too soon, says Capulet, before setting the marriage day for Thursday. Do you like this haste? Everything in this play is in a rush. Juliet cannot wait for Romeo to arrive. Famous soliloquy of hers. Gallop apace, you fiery-footed steeds towards Phoebus' lodging. Such a wagoner as Phaeton would whip you to the west and bring in cloudy, cloudy night immediately. The rhythms here are clearly impatient and breathless. The inverted foot, which begins the soliloquy, is a trochee, not an iamb. So it's stressed, unstressed, rather than unstressed, stressed, which we associate with the iamb. So the stress is on the first syllable, gallop. Even the language is in a hurry. And Juliet's own image for her impatience 
understands that it is not just that she's too eager for Romeo's arrival there and then, but that she is actually too eager for this adult experience. So tedious is this day, as is the night before some festival to an impatient child that hath new robes and may not wear them. Her, exp- her, her, her kind of go-to image for what it's like to want something and not be able to have it yet is that you've got new clothes and you can't wear them. The simile is from childhood experience, and it movingly captures the gap between the present and the hurried future, the kind of foreclosed future, to which Juliet is committing herself. We used to assume that because Shakespeare must have intended this play to represent high romantic love, early teenage was a normal time to be married. I think that was an assumption based on a few, the evidence of a few very young betrothals in noble families, as a sign of long-term dynastic alliances. But in fact, the average age for marriage in the 1590s was probably only slightly lower than it is now, around the mid-20s. It's clear that everyone who was watching this play would have thought that Juliet, and we don't know Romeo's age, but there's no sense of a particular age gap, everybody would have thought Juliet is too young for this. And it's also clear that her age is really emphasised, it's it's really important uh, to the play that we know how old she is, Uh, and you can count the number of characters in Shakespeare whose age is told to us, uh, probably on the fingers of one hand. Uh, Her age is emphasised, of course, by that great comic monologue by by the nurse about her weaning and the earthquake. So Putnam's term, histeron, proteron, is developmental as well as rhetorical and structural. The cart has come before the horse in sort of psychological or psychosexual development, as well as in structural ways. The chorus's spoiler serves as a metonym for a play which is always ahead of itself, always precocious, too much too soon, too impatient. Even that two hours traffic of our stage sets the clock ticking. It's hard to think that the play could ever have been over quite so fast, but that adds to its hectic quality. So maybe this gives us a way to see the play as a whole. The chorus doesn't just tell us what's going to happen, it enacts that tumbling forward. It is the hysteron proteron that is endemic to this play. In Lerman's film, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a Romeo who's likably gawky and clumsy, running around in an overgrown, uncoordinated, adolescent kind of way. It's a good cinematic attempt to humanise a character who can seem a bit two-dimensional, perhaps more than a bit. But it's also a way to humanise the plot, or to embody the plot uh, in physical action. The plot is helter-skelter, too quick, uh, it needs to slow down. Friar Lawrence says sagely, wisely and slow, they stumble that run fast, even though unfortunately, in his other hand, he has the starting pistol, the tragedy. Okay, so so far we've talked about haste, anticipation and prolepsis as part of the play's incorporation of, or reflection on, its own relation to its sources and to its meta-story, the genre of tragedy. There are a couple of other points I want to try and make before the end of the lecture. The first is about comedy and the second is about what the play is like without the chorus. It's a bit of a critical cliche to say that Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy that fails to be a comedy by a matter of minutes. Although it is appropriate to the rush that I've been describing that Romeo kills himself just that bit too quickly to realise that Juliet is not actually dead. Susan Snyder argues, though, that this is a play that becomes, rather than is, tragic. 
it becomes rather than is tragic. And there are lots of ways in which Romeo and Juliet seems to be built on a comic frame. Young people programmed towards romantic love, coupledom, and ultimate reproduction are figures from comedy. Their disapproving parents in Romeo and Juliet take up the archetypal roles of blocking figures, those anti-comic figures who are always persuaded or ultimately circumvented by comic plotting. Comedy tends to see the young, young win out or supersede their elders. I mean, the whole point about comedy is it's about regeneration and, and kind of social progress. It's a comedy belongs to the children, uh, not to the parents. Aegeus in Midsummer Night's Dream, which we've referred to before as a kind of useful comparison, Aegeus in Midsummer Night's Dream is another father who is dead set against his daughter's choice in marriage, but his objections are simply overruled as the play comes to its multiply comic marital ending. And we might think the prince uh, in Romeo and Juliet, a pretty undeveloped figure and a pretty, particularly weak figure in a way, but, he, but he is, he's being primed to step in and say, let's just stop this, we're not having any more of it. Uh, although that doesn't happen. Uh, it's, it's exactly what does happen in Midsummer Night's Dream uh, when Theseus uh, overrules Aegeus. Mercutio's death, itself a consequence of Romeo's awkward and hasty intervention into the fight with Tybalt, is often cited as the point at which the play stops being a comedy and turns inexorably towards tragedy. In fact, both lovers must leave aside their comic companions, the nurse and Mercutio, and enter that lonely world that is the precursor of tragedy. We see in the play the busy, sociable world of the play's opening, uh, or of the party, perhaps, narrowing to the claustrophobia of the Capulet tomb. So this is a if this is a tragedy built, as Snyder would have it, on a comic matrix, perhaps the purpose of the chorus is more pointedly preemptive it might look as if this could all turn out well, but you've already heard that it won't. You might be all churned up and uh, anxious, uh, but Henri's point, we know what's going to happen, tragedy is restful, is reinstated by the fact of the chorus. Or perhaps the comic conclusion is borne out, marriage is transformed here into a kind of consummation with death. Uh, and the, the, the sum of that isn't there in the tomb, the idea that death is a bridegroom. So maybe the play's gestures towards comedy are, are written out in a, in a grim or sombre form, or maybe they're always contained in a narrative that's foreclosed comic conclusion by having the chorus tell us what's going to happen. So my final point is, what happens when the chorus doesn't tell us that? Romeo and Juliet is an interesting play textually. It exists in a quarto of 1597 and another of 1599. These two quartos are substantively different from each other. And if you actually want to work on this most familiar of plays, there's some really helpful defamiliarisation about looking at the two texts alongside each other. Um, the arguments about whether the differences between Q1 1597 and Q2 1599 record authorial revision, adaptation for performance, or simply errors in transmission are still unresolved. They're probably unresolvable. But if we look at the text in parallel, we can pinpoint what's specific to each version. And not least because in the cases of King Lear and Hamlet, 
we've seen a certain editorial scrupulousness in trying to keep the texts, the early texts, separate, not to conflate them into one uh, kind of supertext. Um, uh, it's interesting to think how why Romeo and Juliet hasn't had that when uh, what, what modern editors of Romeo and Juliet tend to do is to pick and choose uh, from the two early versions uh, where they think is preferable. So um, disaggregating those, looking at them uh, separately, I think is a really interesting thing to do. Uh, Q1 is shorter by about a fifth. Uh, it probably could fit into two hours. Its opening prologue is 12, not 14 lines. Juliet's role is particularly diminished in Q1, so if you're interested in any of those things, looking at the two texts is interesting. But the point I wanted to end on is not a fact about the differences between Q1 and Q2, but about one difference in the folio text. So the folio text is published in the posthumous complete works of 1623. It has no independent authority. It doesn't have any other information in it. Um, so it's not particularly interesting editorially, except in one distinctive feature. It has no opening chorus. So scratch everything I've said. No spoiler, no prolepsis, no hysteron, proteron. Now the reasons that the folio does not have the chorus to Romeo and Juliet are almost certainly uh, practically attributable to some kind of textual mistake. Tiffany Stern has argued brilliantly about how certain elements of play texts, particularly songs, prologues and epilogues, were porous, separable bits of the overall play script, quite likely to get detached, replaced or omitted depending on the occasion. So she argues that they're not integral uh, to the play script and in fact actually that the play script itself is not uh, an integrated and autonomous unit. So the question of why the prologue is missing is probably a theatre historical or a textual one. The question of why it might matter is more of our topic today, a more literary or interpretive one. And the fact that one early version of the play does exist without this element perhaps makes my opening question a bit more pertinent and a bit less hypothetical. How is the folio Romeo and Juliet different from the quartos by not having this chorus? Is it less deterministic? Is there more chance for the, for the characters to take on these roles and do something with them? Is it less assured? Is it less relaxing in all these terms? Could we be watching a play which we, where we genuinely don't know what's going to happen? And there's been a long history from the 18th century onwards of performing Romeo and Juliet uh, with a happy ending, or alternating a happy ending Romeo and Juliet with a tragic ending uh, on alternate nights. Um, that There is a kind of wish for this play uh, to work out well, uh, and, and playing with the end of the play, playing with the sequence by which Romeo and Juliet die, is absolutely endemic in almost every production. You can see Lerman do that, uh, do that too. So is it more comic or more evitable, that principle of Snyder's, that things could go in different directions? Is it less tragic? It's worth reviewing some of what we've said today about the chorus and the work that it does in the light of the folio's publication without it. Is it possible to get a sharper sense of the work that that short prefatory verse does to the text of Romeo and Juliet with which we are all so over-familiar when we look at the fact that it isn't there in the 1623 folio and in fact it's not part of the play uh, in published editions uh, for about a hundred years after that? Okay, so to finish up then, I've been talking about Romeo and Juliet in terms of over-determinism, fatalism, already writtenness. I've tried to introduce Putnam's lovely figure of the preposterous or disordered speech, hysteron, proteron. I'm going to talk a bit more about this next week 
when the play I'm going to be working on is Julius Caesar. And I think I want to ask something about the walk-on part of Sinner the Poet. In the spirit of the plot spoiler with which we've been concerned today, let's say of Sinner that he doesn't walk off. And I want to try and use this cameo from Julius Caesar to think about writing poetry and what the Roman world means for Shakespeare. Maybe I'll see you then. Thank you.